Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 130 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk with Gary Lewis of Phoenix Perennials and Specialty Plants all about ground covers. The plant profile is on amaryllis, and we share what's going on in the garden as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. We close out with garden communicator Carol J. Michael, who shares the last word on five daily gardening tips. This episode, we're joined by Gary Lewis. He is the owner of Phoenix Perennials and the author of The Complete Book of Ground Covers. Welcome, Gary. Thanks, Kathy. Pleasure to be on. Great to have you on. And so we should start off by saying the topic of this episode is ground covers. And you have a brand new book on the to- on that topic, and I have one coming out soon. But um, you are one of our few guests, Gary, that are not from the Mid-Atlantic area. So I'd like you to tell listeners uh, first a bit about where you're located and your growing zone. Okay. Uh, Well, I am from Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada, and uh, we have a gardening climate very much like Seattle. So we're pretty mild. I'm zone 8B where I am. And, uh, you know, it's kind of God's country in terms of growing perennials because we can do all of you know pretty much everything and then we can get into some kind of fun zonal denial type plants as well and have a have a good time with those but my um i did grow up in ontario which is closer to your neck of the woods uh kind of zone 5b territory Uh, so i have a little bit of familiarity with uh continental gardening and a little bit more east coast gardening as well Excellent. And it is so funny to think how much farther north you are than most of our listeners, but that you are a pretty much a zone higher than most of us. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. And actually, if you if you go all the way up the coast of British Columbia and you get into the Alaska Panhandle, they're actually really mild up there, too. So you can get into I'm not sure what the zones are in the Alaska Panhandle, but I guess it could be zone seven, zone eight. So um, different kinds of climates. So, of course, we you know, our climate here is zone, you know, 8B, except, you know, it's different than a zone 7 or 8 in the Carolinas. Uh, we have a modified Mediterranean climate here, so it's kind of an extension of California in that we have mild, wet winters that stay kind of cool. We get snow from time to time, but not often. And then we have really quite dry summers with a fair bit of uh, summer drought. So it's uh, a little bit different than, you know, say, uh, the Carolinas, where you might be zone seven or maybe zone eight, but you're um, you're warming up during the day a little bit, and uh, then kind of getting a little bit cold at night. Mm-hmm. And definitely different, as you said, rainfall patterns. Whereas we can have, you know, deluges in the summertime um, and pretty wet conditions on and off, and there's also a day length difference. Yeah, certainly. And at this time of year, as uh, we're getting into uh, winter time, our days are very short up here in the in the north. Mm-hmm. I know. I'm feeling the short days here already, Gary. <laughs> 
feeling <laughs> feeling sorry for myself already that it's already dark <laughs> at 4.45 or 5 p.m. I try to think of it as cozy time. <laughs> it's the cozy. I, I don't, you know, fall is beautiful and I envy you guys back in the East because, you know, one of the things I love so much about Eastern North America is the fall color. And we don't have that out here on the West Coast. We've just got conifers. Uh, so I, I envy you guys for that fall color. But the rest of kind of fall makes me feel melancholy. But I've been trying to change my thinking around that in the last few years and think of it as cozy time. It's time to settle in for a nice cozy winter. Mm-hmm. And so we like to ask on the Garden DC podcast uh, about baby Gary. And were you born <laughs> with chlorophyll in your veins and a green thumb? Uh, I think I probably was actually. Um, I don't know how I got into gardening, but it, it probably is genetic uh, or, or something. Uh, there's a photo of me at six months old sitting on my on my grandmother's lap and uh, she was a gardener and uh, you know had a lot like liked to plant her annuals liked her host plants and I'm sitting there on her lap and there is a, a tropical hibiscus in a pot right in the garden and um, she's got it outside uh, in the summertime and it's a big huge blooming red tropical hibiscus and I am reaching out for it I'm not paying attention to the camera I'm not paying attention to anybody else but I'm reaching out for that big colorful red flower right beside me so that could have been the start of it at six months old or uh my some of my earlier memories from the ages of three four five six are um going through walking through the fields and forests of my childhood uh i lived in uh, germany when i was quite young and then in nova scotia when i was a little younger and or a little bit older and then um Ontario after that and I would I would seek out my fields and forests and I would pick flowers for my mother so it could have been you know the positive reinforcement of wanting to make my mom happy and uh, coming home with a bouquet of flowers from uh, from you know that I had found out while out foraging for her so uh, I don't know I've been into plants for a long time I started collecting house plants when I was 10 um, at the age of 16, I started working in a wholesale nursery on weekends um, back in Ontario. And uh, it was that year that we, um, my Aunt Jean came over with a rototiller. Aunt Jean is our, the handy aunt. And she rototilled the whole front yard. And then I planted a perennial garden in my mom's front yard, which she still has to this day. I've left her with it to take care of. So, um, yeah, I think I've been into plants for uh, since the very beginning. So that's the baby Gary story. <laughs> and you've grown up and you have your own uh, perennial business. And is that open to the public or wholesale only? Uh, so we're open to the public. So we're a retail grower. So we're a, a retail um, garden center nursery where we grow a very large portion of our own plants. And we also do mail order across Canada. Uh, so we offer about 5,000 different plants a year, which is kind of crazy, uh, but it's fun, keeps me interested. Uh, we import uh, different plants from all over the world, uh, from Europe, from India and Japan and South Africa and from all across the US as well and a little bit in Canada. So we bring in plants from all over the place and grow them on and then offer them to our, our we're, we're kind of a, we're, we're very much a destination nursery within British Columbia. And then, um, and then we, of course, ship across Canada. And fortunately, we don't ship to the U.S. That borders just a little bit too much of a pain to deal with. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that's too bad. And we had met this summer at the Perennial Plant Association, and that was that was taking place in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And one of the difficulties is when you're coming from across the border, you can't bring sample plants, you can't bring things home from that type of meeting. Yeah, I mean, there are ways to do it, but you need mm -hmm. to... You need to get the right paperwork organized and that takes some time and some doing and you know sometimes it's just not worth it mm -hmm. especially for perennial plants whereas woody plants you know you could bare root and do those a little bit easier maybe yeah i mean you could do perennials too and you know i've i've done it before but you know you need mm -hmm. to get your phytosanitary certificate which oh, means yeah. hooking up with the usda officer you know and all that stuff so <laughs> I mean, I, I have that done all the time for my imports from all around the world. Uh, but if I, you know, if I'm just at a, uh, you know, if I'm visiting the States and I'm, I'm at a conference and there's some plants at a nursery or at the conference or somewhere that I see, then I, I start, you know, my heart starts palpitating and I start getting excited because I'm experiencing a little bit of plant lust. I just have to kind of work through that, you know, and just, you know, look for the plant elsewhere and, 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 you know, come to terms with the fact that I can't take it home with me on that trip, at least. <laughs> yes. And then it's always on your want list after that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, you know, that's that's part of the fun in gardening, right? Is learning about new plants and then, um, then going on the hunt to try to find them. Mm -hmm. And so for your new ground cover book, and I should read the entire title because like all books these days, right? It's not just two words, it's much longer. So it is the complete book of ground covers and then the subtitle 4,000 plants that reduce maintenance, control erosion and beautify the landscape. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how this book came about and when did you first get the idea to write it? Or were you approached by the publisher or did you approach them? Um, actually, it was at, uh, in 2010 in Portland at the Perennial Plant Association conference there. I met um, uh, Tom Fisher, who is the one of the editors or who was, he's retired now, but one of the editors of um, Timber Press uh, based in Portland. And uh, yeah, we, we just became friends, casual friends. We would chat every once in a while. And at a certain point, I said to him just casually, oh, yeah, I'd love to write a book one day. And he said, oh, great. Send me some ideas. So uh, I sent him some ideas and uh, uh, he liked them, but he didn't think he thought they'd be a little bit too esoteric. Uh, and so we just started discussing things. And they said, um, he said, you know, now that I've gotten to know you a little bit better and I kind of understand um, you know, the breadth of what you do at your nursery and kind of the kind of the broad knowledge that I had in terms of um, perennials and other garden plants. He, he said, uh, you know, we have been looking for somebody to write, to work on this particular project for many years, and we haven't been able to find anybody who's kind of, kind of got the expertise and, and probably, I mean, who's crazy enough to take on the project. And so they had wanted to, they had published a book in the mid nineties uh, on ground covers, which was a great reference, but over time, these things uh, get a little bit out of date. They, um, uh, you know, the, the plant selections are not in cultivation any longer and lots of new things have popped up. So they really wanted somebody to write a new encyclopedia of ground covers for them. And so he presented this to me and I said, ground covers, that's not very exciting. That's kind of, that's kind of boring. And that was my first, that was my first kind of 
a reaction to it. And I kind of mentioned it to my partner and to some of my friends. And they started making fun of me because they're like, ground covers? That's like, Gary, you're all about like crazy plants and weird plants and rare perennials and zonal denial and subtropicals and, you know, always pushing the envelope. And ground covers are always thought of as that kind of utilitarian plant that, you know, you just you you know you plant them and then you walk all over them right they're there to serve a purpose but they're not there to be exciting and so it took me a little bit of time to work through this but i you know i really wanted the opportunity to write a book and i was excited about the idea of an encyclopedia because here i am with a nursery with 5000 plants in it so obviously i love diversity so i'm very much attracted to um you know trying to discover and learn about everything I can and I'll I want to include every plant in my nursery I would include every every garden plant in my nursery if I could but that wouldn't be very um that wouldn't be very economic but um you know I really started as I started researching ground covers I realized what an amazing group of plants they are uh not only are they incredibly diverse but they also um offer up so many different possibilities in the garden. I mean, from an aesthetic point of view, you can do all kinds of amazing uh, designing and with them and lots of all kinds of playful things with them. But also when we think about, um, when we think about the functionality of our gardens and how, you know, um, how we can reduce maintenance in our gardens, how we can save money on the, and time in our gardens, ground cover can be helpful with that. And then, you know, we, we've become so aware of, um, of sustainability in our gardens and that our gardens exist in a wider world. And that wider world has all kinds of challenges in terms of, um, you know, our carbon footprint and, um, you know, climate change and uh, also supporting uh, populations of our, our pollinators and our bird species and the other critters that we share this uh, this place with so i started realizing holy cow ground covers are not the most boring group of plants ground covers are the most interesting group of plants and they are one of the you know integral uh groups of plants for really kind of meeting the moment that we're in as gardeners and as a society so um yeah that's how the project came about and it took um it took nine years to uh, research it, to write it, to photograph for it, and um, and finally, after uh, after uh, that amount of time, uh, here it is. It just came out. Uh, just came out in October, twenty twenty two. So. Uh, it's uh, it's an exciting time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a part where I have to jump in and, and talk about my book, Gary. I've seen the proofs of your book, and it mm-hmm. looks fantastic. I'm I'm really excited about it because I think your book and my book um, are both arriving at great times. And you know, I love I love how your book is really focusing on that uh, that kind of lawn alternative thing, which is the most important you know the the most important aspect of ground covers when it comes to making our gardens more sustainable. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think your garden is, uh, sorry, your, your book is um, incredibly timely. And, uh, and I think our books are great companions for each other. So I think everybody should have both of them. I totally agree. Yeah. I was going to say the long n- title of mine, ground cover revolution. And then the subtitle, how do you sustainable low maintenance, low water ground covers to replace your turf is more pointed title 
in that it's telling you to replace your turf, although it's not an anti-lawn book per se, um, but you could certainly interpret it that way. And then yours is definitely more the encyclopedic type of collection um, because I'm for featuring 40 profiles of top ground covers and you have 4,000. <laughs> so quite the difference in that way. Yeah, I know. But yeah, yours is, you know, yours narrows it down to, you know, a, a, a kind of a bite-sized topic. Um, but, you know, I was really struck when thinking about lawns and how ground covers can play such an important role too. And you're right. I mean, lawns play a part in our gardens. We, we need them in certain places for mm -hmm. recreation and also for aesthetics because lawns represent, lawns are that negative space that helps to show off the positive space of, you know, the gardens and the plantings. Um, but, uh, um, you know, when you think about lawns, it is that the that's the biggest opportunity for increasing sustainability in our gardens and i, I found uh, some some statistics that said uh, in the continental us uh, a full two percent of the land mass is covered in turf grass that's mm -hmm. 40 million acres of the continental us and so that's a lot of green desert sitting out there that we have to mow and we have to um you know water and care for and that's a lot of landmass that's not supporting um our native pollinators and our native our native little animals and also lost opportunities for doing beautiful things in the garden so yeah i think you're i think i'm excited about your book so tell it yeah tell me more about it yeah so it came about in a little bit different way than yours in that it was a long time coming on the back burner which is similar in that i've been growing various ground covers in my little urban garden for years and trying to do battle with each other. Like I tore out all the turf grass lawn and then said, well, now what? I can't just let the whole thing erode while I'm waiting to put in flower beds everywhere. <laughs> and in my naivety, thinking it was all going to be perennial gardens at some point, but realizing in the meantime, it's got to be some type of ground cover or something to hold it in. So basically, if I found a plant that was a fast spreading, grabbing a hold of the turf and, you know, beating it out and overrunning turf or overrunning the English ivy that was coming in from the neighbors, <laughs> then I was growing it. So <laughs> I was just doing lots and lots of years of experimenting and taking my own photos and notes and not even thinking of a book at all. Just thinking, you know, this is how I'm going to conquer this little problem I have. Um, and then that's after publishing the Urban Garden last year with Terry Spate, I started to think about another project. And then I thought, you know what, I have all this research and practical information about ground covers. And I give a talk, a regular talk to garden clubs and at public gardens on ground cover alternatives to lawn that was extremely popular. And so I thought I should just turn that talk into this book. Um, and that's how that came about. Yeah, it's very organically, right? You've been doing the research in mm -hmm. your own little garden project for so long. And yeah, there it is. And also, I think I was seeing kind of what we're both seeing with, with the convergence of our books is, you know, the eco interest, the um, trying to replace what you're doing in your life, not just because you don't want to be mowing every week or watering all the time, but you want to add to the earth's bounty. Like I want to have something productive and beautiful right in my garden um, or my landscape that I can control and 
I can somehow contribute to the earth's bounty, like either by supporting wildlife or just not using chemicals in my lawn. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And ground covers are what's going to do that. Yep. And the one thing I was looking at today, Gary, in our two books is the other big difference besides the number of listings of ground covers is that I say ground cover as one word and you have it as two words. So maybe we should uh, debate that a little bit and see what we think. You know, originally I had it as one word because uh, I thought, you know, I Googled, I Googled ground cover and I looked mm-hmm. at like 50 different sites and I looked up, I looked at, you know, I looked at, uh, you know, my bookshelf and I looked for any book that might mention ground covers to see how they, um, how they wrote it. And then I asked my, you know, I finally asked my editor and I said, I said, uh, um, what can we, you know, how do we spell this? And he said, well, you can really choose. And I'm like, cause he says it's kind of written both ways. And so I went with one word at first. And then when I saw the, um, when I kind of saw it written out, I thought the title looked better if it was going to be two words. So then I opted for the two word option. See, I thought you were going to say it was a Canadian thing. Well, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, we, we, we yeah. follow the British spelling of things, which was mm-hmm. actually hard writing the book because I had, I'd always spell it the Canadian or British way. And then I realized, wait, I'm, I, this is a book that's going to be published by a U.S. Um, uh, publisher. I'm going to have to, uh, you know, um, I'm going to have to spell things the American way. But mm-hmm. I know, I, I don't think it's, and I, 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 I think I thought about that when I was, um, you know, when I was trying to decide how to spell it, because I think I looked at British sites as well as Canadian sites specifically as well. And they spelled it both ways Mm -hmm. in in outside of the U.S. as well. So I think it's just a choice. It can be spelled either way. I agree. It's it's definitely a choice and both are correct. And both are perfectly usable, but I had to had it as two words in sometimes when I gave the talk. <laughs> so, and I had two gone back and forth and then I decided, you know what? I like it better as one, at one word. And when you have the title ground cover revolution, it does look better as ground cover revolution as one, one word. So there oh, you go. Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah. Well, it was a dilemma. It took a long time to decide. And then it, I was halfway written the book before I decided decided to change it to the other spelling. <laughs> yeah. And I'm surprised also that your publisher was, you know, let you make that decision, which was very nice of them. Yeah, I guess so. I think, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I think they kind of researched it themselves and realized, well, it kind of mm-hmm. has two spellings. So whichever you want. Exactly. Yeah. And so, um, that does bring up when we talk about international words or spelling. Um, my book is aimed internationally, and that kind of constrained some of those 40 profiles I did. So I had to pick plants that were available in most countries or at least familiar to most people. And it also constrained a little bit some of the profile descriptions that are in there and that I couldn't do USDA zones per se. Mm. Um what we use temperature ranges instead. Um, did you have the same um, profile questions in your book? Um, well, I mean, it's, I was also, I mean, my book is meant to cover the temperate gardening world. So I did a lot of, um, you know, the whole first year was just about researching uh, basically all of the ground covers 
that I could see from, you know, from websites, from the availability lists and catalogs of wholesale and retail nurseries throughout North America, um, uh, as well as I also researched Europe, the UK, continental Europe, as well as other places like New Zealand and Australia to really get a good sense of everything that was growing, everything that was growing out there. So my book is basically aimed from zone one to zone eight. Um, however, it is you know, the majority of copies are going to be sold in the, in the U.S. and in Canada. And I mean, I think they think about 10% are going to be sold in the U.K. and the rest of Europe. Um, so, you know, it is, the audience is mainly North American and we understand those, um, the uh, USDA hardiness zones. We use the exact same zones as you. Uh, so I've gone with the zones as opposed to the temperatures. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, e- either way, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so when we see, you know, minus 25 or something on yours, then, you know, that's, that's uh, you know, we can, we can gauge that as gardeners because we know what our climate does. And if we're confused, we can just look up, we can just look up how minus 25 uh, corresponds with, uh, with, the, with the hardiness zones. Exactly. Yeah, and it definitely made me become a lot more intimate with my growing zones as far as their temperature ranges when I had to research each one and check those out. Yeah. Uh, you probably have them all memorized now. It's probably like, like memorizing your multiplication tables or something. Exactly. I'm like, I have this little chart of the temperatures for each zone. And the other thing I was going to say about the... Uh, Amy, at an international um, audience, also constrains the the use of native. So when I tend to say about this plant, you know, one ground cover that this is native to our region, and these are some non-natives that are also available, blah, blah, blah. So then I'm more talking about where this plant is native to or originates in. Um, but I'm not necessarily saying where you're going to find your native plant. Yeah, exactly. And I did the same thing because, um, so I, I my background, um, you know, uh, is in plant ecology. So I did a couple of degrees, um, in the sciencey side of plants as opposed to horticulture. And so I love that idea of where plants come from, what kind of habitats they grow in. Um, and cause it kind of tells the story of, of place and kind of that, um, and the story of the evolution of these plants, plus knowing what kind of habitat they come from really helps inform what kind of garden conditions we put them in uh, when we want to grow them. So, um, yeah, so I did have to think about there being an international audience and then reading from, you know, all kinds of different, all kinds of different places in the world, for, for sure. Mm-hmm. So one of the attributes of ground covers is that they can fill in fairly quickly, which also makes them, we'll just use the polite term, aggressive. (laughs) So a lot of it can be a plant that some people would label as invasive in their area, but then are perfectly well-behaving in other areas. So like all things, gardening is local. Um, How it affects your local growing area or climate is what you really want to know. So did you label in your book whether something is invasive in some areas or has invasive tendencies or how did you deal with that conundrum? Yeah, certainly that, that is an issue. And, and also, you know, it depends on the size of garden you have. Like if you have a, if you have a small garden, then you might just have an a, aggressively growing ground cover that is just going to grow too fast for your space. Whereas that exact same ground cover 
in another part of the city where they've got really big lots is going to be the perfect ground cover for that space. So, I mean, there's so many, there's such a range of different ground covers and some are very slow to spread, even though they will eventually form, uh, you know, a nice mat and others are really quite um, rambunctious. Uh, I did. So there's kind of those two issues. There are those two different words that we play with a lot. And sometimes we use them interchangeably in gardening, but there's, there's aggressive or, you know, overly aggressive, and then there's invasive. And so I would, I would say that, you know, the definitions I went with would be, you know, if it's aggressive, then it's a, it's a plant that is just not well chosen for um, its space. It's too aggressive for the size of space you're working with. Whereas an invasive plant is something that can uh, escape a garden and become invasive within our um, natural environment beyond the garden. So in our forests, in our fields, in our along our water courses, in our native habitats. And so definitely that's always a concern when you're promoting plants is you don't want to be promoting plants that are um, that are invasive and that could affect um, that could affect um, uh, the natural habitats of uh, of those regions so I did in you know in any case what you know when I was researching these plants I was looking for information as well to try to figure out whether they were invasive. And, you know, sometimes plants are invasive in a certain region, but not in other regions. Um, you know, English ivy is kind of invasive almost everywhere it grows. But, um, you know, other plants like um, donkey tail spurge seems to be invasive in drier habitats, such as um, kind of zone five, zone six areas of interior British Columbia, for instance, but not really in coastal British Columbia, just because our, um, you know, our climate is different. So I did try to discuss that in the book and, um, and, you know, talk about the vigor of ground covers and, you know, what kind of situations uh, and sizes of gardens they would be best applied to. And then also to include information uh, about if those plants are potentially invasive in our natural habitats within certain regions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and mine, I have a rating for slow, moderate, or fast spreading, and a, mm -hmm. a little rating yeah. in there, on, and on a chart where there's reference charts where you can go down and look up if you say want something to be fast spreading, but then it is also, of course, a could be a con <laughs> if it's fast spreading and takes over everything else in your garden. Um, right. So there's ratings like that. And we did talk about ratings for wildlife um, use. So whether it is for a pollinator or provides food for somebody, which again, could also be a red flag that if it's of use to um, wildlife, that could also mean it will be eaten by that wildlife. So there's always that as well. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I like your charts, actually. They're very handy. Um, I, I tended to put that information within the text of the, of the plants and the, the culture and care aspects, as well as the uses aspects, talking about, um, how fast things will grow and, um, and also if they have particular benefits for, um, for pollinators and other wildlife. Mm -hmm. And one of the chart ratings I had to actually go back in and add after I'd done several profiles was the height of the ground cover because I started to realize there's an assumption out there when you use the word ground cover or 
two words, ground cover, <laughs> that uh, mm. that it literally just hugs the ground or is just a couple inches high. But there are ground covers that are taller. Some are moderate size, maybe knee high, and some are even taller than that. Um, so do you have a height limit on your ground covers that you included in the book? Or do you have some that are even shrubby or, or taller? Yeah, and that was one of the that was one of the things I wrestled with while writing the book is what should be my cutoff. Uh, and you know, again, it really comes down to your your scale, for instance. So if you're in um if you have a tiny postage stamp garden, then you're really gonna want ground covers that stay pretty low. But if you've got a big space, or even think about like a, a giant park, for instance. Uh, you could plant a shrub that might grow three feet high, but grow 10 feet wide. So within a landscape situation or an institutional planting, that is essentially a ground cover because it is growing, you know, three times wider than its height and it is spreading across the ground. So I tended, so we do have that narrow definition of ground covers, which, you know, tends to be that they're rhizomatous or stoloniferous or, um, or trailing plants that stay, you know, quite low within a few inches of the ground. But, you know, in this, in, in this book, and I can see in your book as well, I mean, it's about performing all of these things that we want ground covers to do. So, you know, making the space beautiful and interesting, but also preventing erosion, keeping down weeds. Uh, and so there are lots of different creative ways that you can cover ground with different plants so of course all my book includes all of those you know all of those plants within that narrower definition of um of ground covers but like you in your book i see you've also included plants that are tend to be a little bit more clumping that we wouldn't think of as a ground cover but mm -hmm. if we mass plant those so take hostas for instance you could I've seen hostas mass planted, you know, 100 or 200 or 500 hostas in the understory of a, you know, a shady kind of um, woodland area. And those hostas planted at the right distance so that their leaves all touch and that they form a closed cover, those hostas are acting as a ground cover. Even though we might take that same hosta and just plant one in the garden and we think of it as an accent plant, but taken together, um, hosta or the coral bells, hookera, or um, different grasses. If we mass plant them together at the right distances, we can form a closed cover, and they can act as a ground cover. So, uh, you know, so I went, I went broader there because you can, they can, you can cover ground with those as well. You know, you wouldn't think of, um, you wouldn't think of a clematis or a Virginia creeper or uh, a campsis or you know other vines as ground covers, but uh, a vine that doesn't have anything to grow up, any, any vertical support will clamor across the ground and form a, form a ground cover. So uh, especially for a little bit larger areas uh, and for slopes, you can use uh, vines as really interesting and effective and kind of billowing, uh, billowing ground covers. So I tended to take a, a, a broader, uh, a broader definition of ground covers. And then I tried to kind of keep myself to about 12 to 18 inches of height but there were cases where I went to maybe two or three feet uh, out here on the west coast we grow um, California lilac a lot say anothis and uh, there are there are dwarf cultivars that might only get to six inches or 12 inches but there's some that that get to two feet or three feet high but they'll get to six or eight or 
10 feet wide. So, um, and you could think about it in terms of junipers as well, like the, the widespreading junipers. There are some that are really quite low, but there are some that might get to a foot or two or three, but get appreciably wide and, and be able to form a kind of tall or mounding ground cover. So uh, I, did, I did break through that 12 to 18 inch height from time to time uh, to include plants that um, really did have an amazing spread relative to their height. Was that something that you also had to wrestle with in choosing plants for your book? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And yeah, the clumping versus truly spreading like a ground cover, either by the roots or overground still. And then uh, same with the vines. You were like, oh, I could go whole hog on the vines, <laughs> so to speak, or just pick one or two. And then those are the ones that usually tended to fall into the almost invasive category where a lot of the vines. So that made the decision kind of easy for me since I'm winnowing it down to a, a top 40, so to speak, whereas you're doing a comprehensive collection of all that are available. Um, so yeah, those were definitely all concerns. And I just remember this uh, one attendee at one of my past ground cover talks um, saying, hey, that's not a ground cover because it was above three inches tall. Right. <laughs> so having that person's uh, voice in my ear, I would I still chose some of the taller ground covers because like you said, they can still be fully functioning as ground covers and in certain settings, very beautiful and fill in and especially as we're talking about slopes and covering it the fact that they are coming a little bit higher doesn't matter you're not going to be stepping into there um, if you're trying to cover a steep slope or a ravine with something that will block out weeds or other invasive plants um, then the height is not so much of a concern yeah exactly and you know there were some cases where you know i i wasn't going to include um Flomus for Celiana, Jerusalem, Jerusalem sage. And because of course, you know, it grows to three blooms at three feet tall, but then I came across a photo and uh, it was from uh, winter time. So it was the, the, you know, the, the stems had died, but they were still, you know, they were brown and still ornamental, but it's, there it is. It's semi evergreen to evergreen with just its basil leaves forming an amazing ground cover, only four to six inches tall off the ground and in a way as well, even when it does bloom, it's a little bit of a see-through plant. So, you know, mm -hmm. you can use it and it does spread slowly over time. So you can use it as a ground cover. You know, you're not going to use it to plant between pavers and you're not going to, you know, you're not going to use it in certain situations where you choose more of a, a classic ground cover, but uh, in certain situations it can act, uh, you know, these different plants uh, can act as ground covers. Mm -hmm. And uh, that definitely applies to a lot of the perennials that I had picked, like Rudbeckia, where there's a basal foliage, you know, growing flat against the ground, and then you have the taller wands of flowers coming above. And you could whack it back to always have that basal foliage. <laughs> I mean, that, yeah. that's a choice, right. not, not a choice I would make. But yes, Especially if you don't like yellow flowers. <laughs> yes, but um, so it's whether that has that ground hugging quality underneath it. It, it was really the, the determination in that. How did you narrow it down to forty ground covers? That would have been excruciating. Gary, 
it was tough. And yeah, looking at your 4,000, I'm like, I wish I could have done this. I wish I could have done that. So yeah, in my talks, there's always the bonus. And I'm like, and here's a few I wasn't able to include. But you know, there's only so much paper and page space. Um, and I wanted to also devote uh, the first third of the book is the why and how. Right. And also some inspirational ideas. So we wanted to give some space for photos of uh, landscapes that showed ground covers to really good effect and how these homeowners have done it. And I always tried to include realistic photos, you know, not fantasy photos. Yeah. <laughs> so so no, that was one of my... from time to time is nice. Yes. <laughs> but definitely wanted to say this is possible. It's not just Photoshopped mosaic <laughs> of, you know, I've seen some catalogs and I won't name them, but I've seen some mail order catalogs where I'm like, uh, that is not a real planting where they piece together the same plant, right, you know, yeah. side by side by side by side. So yeah, definitely wanted to be honest and forthright in that. And that does bring me to the photos, which when you have 4,000 selection, that's a lot of photos, Gary. And I think you took almost all of the photos in your book. Yeah, there's um, about 650 photos, and I took almost all of them. I think there's 30 or 40 that, uh, as it turns out, at the end of things, I didn't have a photo of a certain plant. I don't know how, because I spent nine years taking pictures of every single ground cover I could see. And actually, it was really annoying, because sometimes I didn't have a photo of one of the most common ground covers out there, but maybe I just assumed I already had a photo of that. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, yeah. So there was, there were certain things, you know, and you know, I mean, my, um, my, my publisher and I both thought we'd finish the book within a couple of years. We never thought it would take nine years and it took nine years to, to, to research and write it mainly. And then in the, in the spaces where I, you know, the summertime and the traveling time and the conference times, that's when I was taking a lot of the photos, which was not really times when I had uh, times of the year when I had time to sit down and write. Turns out I needed nine years to get all of the photos I needed for the book. So almost um, almost every single genus in the book has at least one photo that represents and gives you a sense of um, of what that group of plants looks like. And then, like you, I also have some. Um, lots of introductory chapters that talk about the how and and the why and the the, ben the various benefits of, of ground covers. And then also, I, I really enjoyed talking about um, designing with ground covers as well. So there's introductory chapters with, and maybe there are a few little fantasy photos in there. Well, not total fantasy, they're actually real places, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. but just places where they've really done beautiful jobs with ground covers. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, so the introductory chapters have a lot of pretty photos as well as the A to Z section. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I really enjoyed looking at, at the some of the examples of ground cover design in yours. And yeah, I would say in mine, about 50% of the, the photos I personally took. And same, you know, where you thought you had a photo for sure of moss yeah <laughs> and then you're like where that is that moss photo or you just can't put your finger on it so you have to outsource that photo and also i was reaching out to other garden communicators to find to see what was available out there and to say do you have great examples because i wanted to make sure of course that it wasn't just from the mid-atlantic that it was from an international perspective right yeah yeah i thought at one point you know i i'd uh um 
you know, send out an email in my email newsletter to all of my nursery customers say, Hey, I'm taking pictures of ground covers. If you have amazing displays of certain ground covers, you know, you know, send me an email and I'll come and I'll, I'll photograph them. But, uh, didn't actually have time to do that, <laughs> but, uh, could have gotten even more beautiful photos, but, uh, I don't know. I, in, in all, I took about, uh, 250,000 to 300,000 photos over nine years. So I think that was, that was probably enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And those outtakes can always go into your talks. <laughs> exactly. And they do, they do. Yeah. I have also have a companion talk on my book. Mm -hmm. And so there's uh, lots of pictures, uh, from the book, but then there's a whole bunch of extras, which, you know, cause you have those favorite photos that you just had to cut and, you know, you couldn't include, mm -hmm. and, but you feel sad about that because it's such a beautiful photo. So I put them in the talk. So people Yay. get to see those and get a little bonus when, um, get a little bonus when I, when I go to, to, mm -hmm. to speak to them. Yeah. Yeah, and I think in mine, the profiles, each of them has a close-up and then an in-situ picture of what it would look like as a ground cover. But in my talks, I get to show different close-ups. You know, you're like, this yeah, time of, of year or with a pollinator on it. So that's always fun to share, too. And I should uh, note here, too, Gary, that we're both going to be speaking at the Northwest Flower Garden Festival in Seattle in February. Um, but on different days. So if you're at that next February 2023, um, you can catch Gary on one day and then me on another day. Yeah, I'll actually be there on two days. So I think Wednesday and Thursday. And then mm -hmm. what day are you there? I think I'm Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, but giving different talks on different days. Ah, okay. Well, we're going to, we'll overlap, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing your talk there and, and I can't wait to, and we'll, have to uh, we'll have to go for a drink and compare notes. <laughs> yes. We'll be like the ground cover cocktail hour exactly. for us. Um, so that does bring us to um, your favorite ground covers. So I had to narrow it down to 40 Gary. So I'm, I'm going to make you narrow down 4,000 plants into, let's see a top three to five. Do you think it could do that? Well, I, um, I narrowed it. I, it was tough, but I did narrow it down into a couple favorites for shade, a couple favorites for sun, mm -hmm. Great. and then a couple favorites for slopes and erosion control and a couple favorites for lawn alternatives. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Let's start with those uh, sun ones. The sun ones. Okay. So, well, you can't go wrong in the sun with stone crops and everybody knows, you know, that's a classic ground cover, the, the sedums. Uh, but, you know, it's been amazing with the, you know, the, the growth in the, um, the green roof and living wall industry is that so many additional stone crops have entered cultivation over, over these, this last decade or two. There's all kinds mm -hmm. of really interesting stone crops out there. There's the normal stuff. Of course, we need sedum angelina and the sedum spuriums are really great. But um, I have two favorites from sedums and that's um, sedum tetractinum that's the chinese um chinese stone crop that one is really cool because it has very kind of rounded leaves and then in the winter as well as in the summer if it gets stressed then it develops coppery orange tones to it which is really beautiful and then i really love sedum um, forsterianum which is a, a little bit like um sedum blue spruce or sedum angelina and then it's very fine textured except the leaves are much finer and um give a an even finer texture than those ones so i love those 
And then I, oh, I do have another favorite sun one. It's um, Cushion Bolax. That's um, Azarella trifurcata nana. Uh, it's a really cool plant in the in the carrot family. It is hardy to zone seven, and uh, it forms this low evergreen ground cover. And if you touch the plants, they actually feel like plastic. It feels like you know how you get those like those cheap green um, mats that you would have, you know, at the entrance to a door to, you know, to clean your mm-hmm. shoes off, you know, you touch those, it kind of feels the same. It feels like this kind of hard plastic, uh, but it forms this neat billowing ground cover and it can trail over walls and kind of look like slow motion green lava as it kind of oozes over walls. So that's, that one's definitely a favorite. So those are, those are, Narrowed down for sun. Those are two, a uh, couple ground covers that really resonate with me. I love that green lava. I think that could be another alternative name to your book. Green lava. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then your uh, shade or part shade. Um, so people make fun of me for this one, but in terms of a commonly available group of shade plants, I do love the bugle weeds. I do love the ajuga. I know mm-hmm. they can seed into lawn sometimes and form bugle lawn, but you know, whenever I see the you know the foliage of black scallop or burgundy glow, or there's been new cultivars that have come out in the last little while with other burgundy tones or um, golden golden colors, as well as the cute little ones like chocolate chip, they're easy, they're versatile. They can go from shade up to they can almost do pretty full sun for us on the West coast, maybe not mm-hmm. quite so much sun for you um, in the East, um, but they're versatile. You can grow them in pots. Um, you can, you can stick them in nooks and crannies. They'll trail over the edge of walls and they've got those pretty flowers that the bees like in the, in the spring. So a Yeah. And, and Gary, I'm going to fight with you on that. Cause I love a And, and I was going to say that, those pretty flowers are perfectly timed here for us here in the DC area in that they bloom right around mother's day and these tall purple little spikes. And when we pot that up for our garden club sale and we're like, yeah, $2 a pot for that ajuga, who would want that? Right. And we stick it in the ground cover section of our, our garden club sale. They fly off the tables. (laughs) Is it because they're in bloom? It's because they're in bloom at that right second and they just look purple and pretty. So, you know, people don't even care. Well, they're really easy to propagate and you should probably Mm -hmm. be charging $3 per pot. I know we should charge more, but yes, (laughs) definitely an attribute for them is that they, they uh, bloom right at mother's day time for us. So there's another, another shade plant I love if I can is, um, Adiantum venustum. So that's the, um, it's the evergreen Himalayan maidenhair fern. Uh, it's a slow growing ground cover. Uh, a lot of us know the more common Adiantum pedatum, the, the, the main maidenhair fern with its, you know, five fingers or five or so fingers. This is a little ground cover one that grows to, I don't know, usually about four to six inches tall. Uh, it's got a beautiful texture to it in kind of light greens and it's uh, evergreen in mild winter climates, so probably evergreen uh, in the or semi evergreen uh, in your region of the world, evergreen for us. But you can also um, shear it down in late winter, and then the new fronds come up, and the new fronds are a beautiful coppery, orangey color. 
which are really quite beautiful. So that's another favorite of mine for a smaller garden kind of situation for shade. Mm -hmm. And ferns are so incredible as ground covers. And I do need to point out, Gary, Adiantum is a Latin name, correct, of the maidenhair fern. And adamantium is a fictional metal that you will see featured in the Marvel Comics universe. So don't get those two mixed up. Ah, there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, Adiantum. Yeah, a great group of plants. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you were saying your uh, slope or covering ground cover. Uh, and, you know, I actually came to, I came to love this plant by seeing it a lot in your neck of the woods. Um, it's uh, Liriope spicata or mm-hmm. uh, lily turf. I actually mm-hmm. saw it used a lot in kind of um, some of the gardens, uh, like um, Chanticleer, for instance, uh, maybe Longwood, and you know different private gardens around DC and Baltimore. I think it's, I think it's a great plant for uh, it's a great lawn alternative because it looks kind of grassy, even um, though a little bit taller. So um, it's a it's a uh, it has those nice long leathery grass-like leaves. It has cute little flowers. It spreads with time. It, it's uh, evergreen, uh, and it's really good at maintaining slopes as well as um, as well as for a lawn alternative. And then you know the other one, it's boring, but man, it's so useful. Pachysandra. So Pachysandra terminalis. Um, it take you know can be a little bit slow to establish sometimes, but it is actually quite beautiful. Even though it's more of a normal kind of plant, uh, it's a real doer for 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 slopes and for um, controlling erosion on slopes. Mm-hmm. And I assume you included the procumbens. The oh, I American love procumbens. Mm-hmm. I do love procumbens as well. And I yeah, that's. Uh, that's a great one that I see a lot in your neck of the woods. We don't grow it so much out our way, but I, I do offer it at, at, at Phoenix from time to time. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a beautiful plant. Mm-hmm. And for those listeners, that's our native Pachysandra, but it is a slow, and I'm talking turtle's pace, terrapin's pace, slow to fill in ground cover. But, you know, if you put in several plugs and you wait a few years, it, it will be a reward. Yeah, and the foliage is so beautiful on that. The mm-hmm. modeling to the foliage is oh, yes. and the texture of the foliage and those kind of rippled edges to the leaves. It's it's well worth it. Mm-hmm. And then you had a last category of your favorites. Uh, so for, for lawn alternatives, I had two favorites, one for mm-hmm. more sun, one for a little bit more shade or sun. So um, woolly thyme is one of my favorites. Uh, Thymus pseudolinuginosis. Uh, does that one grow well for you on the on the eastern seaboard? Mm-hmm. Just has to be full sun and well draining soil. So you want to put it in any, not even part, not even two hours of shade a day. <laughs> it's got to be way out there. Oh, um, the yeah, and that would be under roses or or other treatments like that. I've seen it do really well, and of course on the edges, like the edge of a sidewalk or where pathways meet. That it does really well there. Yeah, that's cool. For, for us out here, it's probably our our best creeping time. It it for some reason it also I mean it needs good drainage, but it um, it really does well with our wet winters. It's really quite tolerant of it. Whereas other creeping times, if they're in rich soils, seem to uh, seem to fizzle over time. 
uh, I don't know the the I think the woolly time here is just so vigorous that it it um, it really puts up with our climate out here. So I love it. It's great. Uh, it's great for trailing over things too. We we once used it not in a ground cover situation but in a hanging basket, and we had it trailing two feet by the end of the season. So it, it's a really vigorous grower. And then the other one is kind of a weird esoteric thing, and it's it's actually a kind of ladies' mantle. Uh, so we think of you know ladies' mantle are those beautiful clumping plants with those kind of scalloped leaves where the you know the water the water droplets sit on the leaves like little jewels kind of shimmering there because the leaves are um, hydrophobic but there's actually a trailing one called alcamilla ellenbeckii uh, and it has these it, it trails across the ground and you wouldn't recognize it as an alcamilla unless you looked really closely at the leaves and then you'd see that it's got tiny leaves and all the leaves are probably like the size of your, um, the nail on your pinky finger. Uh, but you, they're the exact same shape as the larger ladies mantles, just in miniature and on long trailing stems. Uh, the stems are also usually reddish. So you've got this nice, these nice little green leaves, uh, with the reddish stems. And then you do get little tiny, those little tiny chartreuse electric green flowers here and there, um, in the, I guess that's the probably late spring or summer you get those. So that's a that's a cool one for a, a little bit shadier or part shade situation for as a lawn alternative. Mm. Yeah, I don't know that one, and and I have a bit of trouble with Lee's mantle in general, just because I have a lot of dry shade, and it definitely needs moist conditions. But that one is very tempting sounding, Gary. Yeah, I mean, I think it can do well in average situations. I don't know if it would really love dry shade, but mm -hmm. it's so cute that you would just want to go out with your watering can and give it a little extra water in dry periods because it's an yeah. adorable little thing. Maybe near a downspout or something, I could work that Something in. Like that, yeah, exactly. Okay. So where could listeners contact you to find out more about the book and about your perennial operation? Uh, so our website is phoenixperennials.com. Uh, and uh, so it's Phoenix, like Phoenix, Arizona. We do get phone calls from people in Phoenix, Arizona, sometimes looking for perennials. And then we have to tell them that that we're in Canada, <laughs> but uh, much to their chagrin. Uh, but yeah, phoenixperennials.com. There's information on my nursery there. And uh, unfortunately, we don't ship to the States, as I said. But if you've got Canadian listeners, they can definitely visit that. But there's also information on the book there as well. But of course, the book is available everywhere. It's available. Um, you can get it at your local bookstore. Uh, you can buy it from all the big online retailers. And it's uh, it's available across North America now. And then uh, it'll be available in Europe and other international destinations. I think starting December 1st, uh, it'll be available on in, in all of uh, around the world so you can get it anywhere you you like to buy your books excellent well thank you so much gary for sharing your encyclopedic knowledge of ground covers and for sharing about your new book and i'm looking forward to seeing you in seattle soon yeah i'm looking forward to seeing you and also seeing your book and maybe we should go on tour together or something i think so it's kind of like a abbott and costello ground covers versus ground covers Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again, Gary. Thank you so much. Pleasure. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. 
you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Amaryllis plant profile. Amaryllis, hippiastrum species, is a large flowering bulb that is commonly grown indoors for holiday decoration. It is native to Central and South America and includes 90 species and over 600 cultivars. The flower colors can range from the classic red to white, salmon, pink, or creamy yellow. Some flowers are very large, others are more delicate and narrow types. They also come in single and double flower varieties. As many as six flowers will bloom on a single stem. In general, the larger the flower bulb, the more flowers it will produce. To prompt the amaryllis to start to grow, place the bulb in a container filled with lukewarm water for an hour. You can then plant the amaryllis bulb in a container filled with sterile potting mix. Be sure to leave at least the top third of the bulb above the soil level and to choose a container with good drainage that is only an inch or two wider than the bulb itself. Amaryllis like to fit snugly in their pots. Because the flowers can be top-heavy, pick a pot that has some weight and heft to it. Amaryllis prefer a room temperature between 68 and 74 degrees. They also need sufficient light to bloom. If it doesn't get enough, its stems will stretch out and need support. Rotate the pot a quarter turn each time you water the plant. After the flowers finish blooming, the bulbs need a period of recovery and rejuvenation. Cut off the flower stalks, but leave the foliage intact and reduce watering. They can be grown as a houseplant and then placed out in the summer to gather more energy for blooming again in the winter. Repot them every three to four years. If you live in USDA zones eight through 11, they can be planted outdoors in the spring and stay there year-round. Bring them in before the weather gets cold and discontinue watering. Place them in a cool, dark place to remain dormant for at least two months. Then take them out of storage, water them thoroughly, put them in a sunny spot again, and start the bloom cycle over. The National Garden Bureau has declared 2023 as the year of the amaryllis. Amaryllis, you can grow that! What's new in the garden this week? Well, the only thing I can see in bloom in my home garden are the cool season annuals like alyssum, viola, and snapdragons. Over at the community garden plot, we've cleared out another bed and covered that with straw. In the local gardening world, the new issue of Washington Gardener Magazine, November 2022, has been posted and I encourage you to go to our website and check that out. The cover story is on a living wall in Wheaton, Maryland, and there are also features on Carolina chickadees, how to make your holiday tree last longer, meet the Cook Sisters, common crickets, a new Jacob's Ladder, and optimizing urban environments. For upcoming events happening locally, 
A few are virtual, so anybody, anywhere could sign up for them. One is on Tuesday, November 29th at 7 p.m., and that is Biological Control of Invasive Weeds. This is hosted by the Maryland Native Plant Society and is an overview of plant pathology research. It's being held via Zoom, and you can register for that for free at mdflora.org. Another online event you can sign up for for free is Thursday, December 1st at 12 noon. Outdoor containers with fresh greens. Join Peg Beer Mirrorfield Garden Center's plant and design specialist for that Zoom seminar. And an in-person event coming up that you might be interested in is on Tuesday, December 6th, starting at 9.30 a.m., the first annual Maryland Mushroom Grower Symposium. Now, this is for a professional development, and it's for specialty mushroom growers in the area. It is taking place in Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, the fee has been subsidized, so it is just a nominal $12. And you can find out more about that at extension.umd.edu and look under the new events tab. Happy gardening! In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. This is the last word on five year-round daily gardening habits by Carol Michael. I'm co-host of the podcast, The Garden Angelist with Dee Nash. This essay comes from my book, Homegrown and Handpicked, A Year in a Gardening Life. Five year-round daily gardening habits. When the last summer-like days of October are past and the frost is on the pumpkin in November, it's time to get serious about preparing for winter and spring. As is my habit, I clear off the vegetable garden and leave it ready so I can plant peas and lettuce in mid-March without having to till up the ground. I make sure I have a stash of potting soil in the garage so when I buy the first pansies and violas in early spring, I'll have everything I need to plant a few containers to decorate the front porch before Easter. Indoors, fall is the beginning of the gardening book and catalog season. All those gardening books and seed catalogs promised to entertain and enlighten me and give me hope through the winter. If they don't, well then, all hope is lost. As I continue to work in my late fall garden, long after most of my neighbors have called it quits for the season, put up their Christmas lights and started their wintertime hibernation, I'm left alone to ponder what gardening is all about. I imagine ways to keep the gardening spirit alive when the air is frosty and there's snow on the ground. 
It was during one of those quiet days when I came up with five daily gardening habits to keep in mind even when I cannot be in the garden. Smell a flower. Try to keep some fresh flowers around you wherever you are. Sometimes the fresh flowers on a house plant, and sometimes it's a stem or two of cut flowers picked up at the grocery store. Sometimes the flower doesn't even have a scent, but leaning in close to see if it does should put a smile on anyone's face. Touch a leaf. You can do this if you have a favorite house plant nearby at all times. Be sure to keep the plant watered and give it some good light. If you want, you can also talk to it. Some say it helps the plant when you talk to it. Others say it is foolishness. But there's nothing wrong with being foolish at times, and maybe it does help the plant. Sow a few seeds. If you don't have any plant seeds to sow, and often we don't in the wintertime, sow seeds of kindness and helpfulness. Those kinds of seeds are free and can go a long way to add enjoyment to someone's day. Breathe some fresh air. If you can do that while gardening or exercising in a garden, so much the better. Get your hands dirty every day, perhaps by gardening a little outside. If you can't get your hands dirty by gardening, tend to your houseplants. Or get your hands dirty by cooking or crafting or doing something good that occupies your hands and minds and keeps you out of trouble. And that's the last word on five daily habits to keep gardening alive all year. I'm Carol Michael. Thank you. Get low-maintenance alternatives to lawns with Ground Cover Revolution by Kathy Jens. Reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in home ownership, with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional turf grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape, and now they're looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of the perfect lawn, knowing how and when to replace your turf, and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution is here with all the answers you need and some you didn't even know you needed. Included are 40 in-depth profiles of plants and an incredibly useful chart giving you all the specifics on each of those choices for a quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea of what a beautiful lawn should be. Available February 7th, 2023 and you can pre-order it now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.